I went to a concert the other night. Oh my god, you went to a concert. It was so much fucking fun. Tell them who you went with. I went with Jared, our wonderful Nadine's husband, and Ozzy's dad. And it was so amazing because... Koa's best friend's dad, Koa's if you're just dad. tuning in. And, you know, obviously we have this joke that I'm single white femaling everyone's married life. And it feels like that. Like, I'm like... And I'm like, Nadine, thank you so much for letting me go. It was so fun. It was... Jared and I danced so hard. Nobody else around us was dancing. And people were like, you guys are having so much fun. And we're like, yeah, this music is incredible. It's the band Sylvan Esso. They're dancey. It's like electronic DJ. And we knew all the songs. And we were, like, jumping and dancing. And I had so much fun. I got so drunk. I got a little stoned. I loved it. And then at the end of the night, I needed food because I hadn't eaten. So I was like pretty, I was pretty drunk. And I, we went to a bar. The guy tried to rip me off, like tried to charge us more money. And I was like, this is incorrect. And he totally tried to pull one on me. And I was like, you're charging me an extra drink that I did not get. And he was like, oh, it's okay. And I'm like, do the people, it was so weird. I was like, did the people leave here? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, so you just tried. And the guy next to me, I was at the bar getting the check. And the guy next to me is just laughing. And I was like, I think he did that on purpose. And he was like, looks like it. Like the guy tried to rip me out because I was pretty drunk. And then I got a pizza on the way to the train. And I have never been so injured. (laughs) Did you burn the roof? And it is still. Oh, you burnt the roof. It was. So I had a bite. I was pretty drunk. Put some garlic, some oregano, some cheese on it. Took a bite. The cheese was so hot. Like, imagine Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle cheese. It fucking stuck to my mouth. Stuck. Oh, I'm in pain thinking about it. And I was drunk and high, thank God. And I was like, (gasps) (laughs) and Jared's like, are you okay? And I'm like, no, I'm I'm actually not okay. Thanks for asking, Raphael. (laughs) I am not well. (laughs) Oh, that's so great. We haven't talked about the hundred year. Hundred year? Hundred episode party. We did have a hundred at party. You guys, we um Adam and Spencer, the downstairs boys, the Vigs, threw us a I'm sorry, Spencer and Adam. We should make through Spencer's first. Oh right. Really guys, Spencer gets Spencer, really mad that he's he gets, not yeah. uh, Spencer, Spencer, Spencer. He's not featured as much as he thinks is appropriate on Spencer. this show. <laughs> Just keep talking about it. Anyway, so Spencer and Adam, they had a little, we had a themed get-together, a little um, celebration. A little soiree. What we had, the theme was toasts and toasts. So we ate some toasts and we made some toasts. And we made toasts. I made, yeah. Did you make a toast? No, no. I made a lot of toasts. Yeah, you were the, it was mostly... Was you it did okay? the toast. It was perfect. It I was exactly what I wanted. I didn't feel like I come prepared, but I, Matt, I gave Matt a really nice toast. You did. That was so nice. He Thank you for doing that. Me. Well, you did prompt it. Quinn was like, Carrie, we need to talk about Matt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Quinn was like, we need, Carrie, we need to thank Matt. Matt. We need to thank Matt. And I was like, got it. For all the got hard it. work. Got it, got it, got it. Got it. We I need was... to save this marriage. <laughs> we need to keep our babysitter. No babysitter. He's children's father. But we need to keep our the child watcher while we, mm-hmm. you know. 
do this thing called the podcast. But I had so much fun and I made a really good dish. It was a hundred, a hundred themed baked brie. Carrie made some puff pastry number shapes. <laughs> it wasn't puff pastry. It was crescent rolls. <laughs> My mom usually does puff pastry when she does her baked brie. I go crescent. I go. I think it's genius. I was really proud of you and proud of everything you do. I'm really proud of you and everything that you do. We posted a lot of fun pics on the social media of it because Quinn got a bunch of balloons. Oh, I got great these balloons. Photos. I sent Matt and Koa to go get the balloons and Matt was so um, ironically deflated by how expensive they were <laughs> that he he tried to um, go to other stores in the neighborhood to compare prices. And I was like, do you actually think there are there's more than one store in this neighborhood that will sell you giant hundred shape balloons? There's not. It's the 99 cent store all the way. And, and they can charge it. whatever they want because I'll pay it. Because that's how I bad mean, I want those balloons. Are they balloons. still around? Yeah, they're around. And that's, I think, fun for Koa. Well, Griff's turning one on Tuesday. So we bought a one, a zero, and a zero. Just flip that around and it's zero, zero, zero one. one. Well, you got a little confused on the flipping around. <laughs> I feel like at the toast and toast party, you got a little liquored up and then you were like, I have to go. Did you feel that way? No, I got anxious because Griff's been getting up at, at six. That's what happened. I got anxious. I, I, <sighs> you know what? <laughs> he like savings. His a real window's bitch. gotten rather wide, which is to say 5.30 to 7.30 is the wake up window. So it gives me anxiety because the night before I never know what I'm in for. And I feel yes. like it's always going to be 5.30 when I'm not ready for it to be. And it's always going to be 7.30 when I don't need it to be. And yeah. it's proven to be that way lately. So I just have a barrel of anxiety every night, not knowing <laughs> what I'm in for as far as number of hours of sleep. Oof. Yeah. Oof. Tricky and tough. Can you believe he's turning one? No. He's a big boy. He's got six teeth. He's a fucking rock star, this guy. He's so big. He's so big. He's so tall. I was looking back at photos of like when I first met him and stuff, and he's just like... He's getting so big. Yeah. Oh, man. Sweet baby boy. Really like that guy. Really glad really he's like joined him. the... Uh... Joined the roommate situation. Yeah. Glad he's living here with us. Nice guy. You're glad. You got a squatter. And you know what? You want to like him. Really cute squatter. Really, really cute. Took cute. us on that one, too. Ugh. Yeah. Love Needy that little guy. little butt. <laughs> oh, I love that baby. <laughs> I have to tell you some great news for me. It doesn't relate to you, but I, I, it's news that I think you're going to really like. Do I know this news? No, it's cutting edge news. I grew up in Colorado, as you know. Yes. And I used to go to Casa Bonita, which I think I've told, I don't know if I've told you about what that's like there. It's, it looks like a pink castle. It's in a strip mall and you go in and you wait in a long line and you have to order food to enter the establishment. You're not allowed in if you haven't ordered food and you have to order a meal per person going in. You have to. So if you and I went, we each have to get an entree and we're not going to be allowed in until we've done that. Now, why you need to know that is that the food is guaranteed to give you food poisoning. It is because they do this. They're also like, and we are also going to make you the worst food you've ever had ever, but you must, must buy it. The reason they do this though, is that once you go in, it's a magical wonderland. It's got well, it's a beautiful house, Casa Bonita. It's got a haunted cave you walk through. It's got um, so it's a, t- a wishing a well that talks you buy a meal. to you. Yes. 
Exactly. Oh, wow. It's got like, um, the most important thing it has is a cliff diving show. There's all these tables that surround an area that's a swimming pool with an elevated stage, and they do really over-the-top, melodramatic scenes where, like, a cowboy comes out and has reason to shoot a gorilla that then falls into the water below, 20 feet drop. (laughs) And the actors are like, you stole my napkin. I don't know. They have, like, really bad basic storylines. Matt Zambrano, friend of the podcast, was an actor there. And used to get to do this, because he's also from Denver. And I'm just telling you that as a kid... This place it's was... It's medieval times, most, but it's more... In, it's independently owned medieval times. But here's times. the thing. It's, it's medieval times with no budget. Like, the costumes are kind of bad. They don't, like, maintain it in a way that you... That gives you a warm fuzziness about it. Yeah. Where you're like, you know, the area of the cave where there's kind of a broken spider that's supposed to be scary. Like, <laughs> but you just love it so much. Like, nothing but love for this place. And as a kid, you always want to go and you fight with your parents because they really, really don't want to get those really disgusting burritos they have to buy to go there. This sounds incredible. Big news. Big news. Somebody bought it this week for $3 million. You want to know who? Who? Matt Parker and Trey Stone (gasps) bought it. And they're like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to keep it exactly the same, but we're hiring an excellent James Beard award-winning chef. (laughs) Because are they from, by the way, if you don't know, they are South Park people and also Book of Mormon and all that stuff. Wait a minute. So did they grow up with it? Yes. And feel the same? Yes. Everyone that grew up in Colorado feels the same feeling, that they have nothing but love for Casa Bonita, but now... They're doing the one thing you want them to do. They're like, we're not going to... I don't even think they're going to change the menu, like what's on the menu necessarily. They're just going to make all the food taste really, really good. When Have you brought Koa there yet? No. I'm so excited. The next time you go to Denver, it's number one on your list. Number one and number two and number three. We're just going to go every day. (laughs) Because if there's good food and this entertainment... Quinn, you're unstoppable. I'm so excited. Wait, this is huge. Yeah, I I knew you would get it, how important it is. Well, again, you know how I feel about entertainment and then a food accompanying it. Even if the food is bad and burns your mouth, you still enjoy the fucking entertainment. Here, can you imagine if the pizza didn't burn my mouth, how much better my night would have been? And it was already amazing? I think you should go with us. I would love to. Yeah, it would be really important (laughs) to me to share this, this formative place in my life with you. And also enjoy some very delicious food. So I have a similar place in my life called Indiana Beach. Mm-hmm. If you're from the Midwest or from Indiana specifically, the tagline is there's more than corn in Indiana. And my family would go for three days, like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So we'd go in the middle of the week in the summer. And it was one of the first places I could like go explore. It was an amusement park, mm-hmm. but it's a really shitty amusement park. But there's like a couple roller coasters, but we could at like 12, my mom let us walk around this smaller amusement park and they had taco salad like the food is bad but so good and either way it was decrepit the games were 25 cents it was all this stuff but it brings so many feelings up in me of Mm -hmm. like nostalgia the smell it is so it was basically defunct and it was abandoned and then someone just bought it as well (gasps) and is like rehabbing it to get back to where it was 
when I was a kid. That's so great. So I'm really excited to go back and visit. Congratulations. Congratulations. Childhood dreams. Childhood dreams are coming back in full effect. You know what speaking of? I'm lying in bed with Cole last night and he goes, I want my dreams to come true. And I said, which is such a funny thing to say because I was like, yeah, join the club. But (laughs) I said to him, which dream? And he goes, that I would live with Paw Patrol, but you would live there too. (laughs) I was like, Okay. He hasn't seen Paw Patrol. He only has a book that features the characters. Because I heard that the show's not great. That's He's, powerful. And then he had a dream, I guess, that he lived there. And when he woke up, he had a lot of concerns about the dream because he doesn't want to move away from us. But he also could see that it might be a good life to live with Paw Patrol. Why have you heard Paw Patrol? Because I'm sure some of our dearest readers, dear readers, have... Their kids watch Paw Patrol. My nephews watch Paw Patrol. Why do you... What is bad about Paw Patrol? Oh, it's nothing bad about it. It's just that I heard from enough parents... Nobody likes it. Like, just in the way where it's like... Is it like Caillou? Is it like Caillou kind of... Oh, I don't think it's that bad. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that Caillou... Caillou Caillou Caillou. makes me laugh so hard because of the amount of hate parents have. Like, my... I think my family feels that way right now about Coco Melon. Don't know it. Coco Melon is a lot. People have a lot of feelings about kids' shows. My whole thing is they're only a kid once. In other words, you only get to pick what they watch at one point in their lives, and that's now. And there's tons of kid shows, so I'm sort of like you got to do Yo Gabba Gabba. That was when I babysat. I done that yet? That was Yo Gabba Gabba is an old one, and it's like these weird, colorful monsters. Okay, but they have really cool musical guests come on. Like there's people oh, nice. that adults would like. Mm-hmm. Like I think I watched it. I think the Black Keys. Was like oh, wow. the musical guest. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's lots of good kid shows. So it's not that he's not allowed and I'm like, no. It's more that I'm like... If I'm going to have to watch this with you, I want to be entertained too. You know, I... I and What's it's your not vibe? That Do you I like even... Octonauts? Octonauts, I like fine. It's educational. The problem is everyone in this house is now... Brayden, myself, Matt, we walk by each other in the hall and by the bathroom and we say to each other, creature report, creature (laughs) report. And we say it 3,000 times a day because it's stuck in our heads permanently. And that's a little upsetting. I have notes on that. What is your favorite kid's show? Charlie and Lola. And I think he's over it. So that's a bummer. But Griffin, no, just watch it alone. Just watch it on my own time. Put him to bed. <laughs> Put on some episodes of Charlie and Lola. <laughs> For a while. Throw on a couple Charlie and Lola's. You know, nice just before bed. Just before bed. I like Martin Short's Cat in the Hat. Um, mostly because I know it's him, so it gives me a warm feeling. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, you're listening to Truly Darkly Creepy. That's Carrie Ippa. And that's Quinn the Posner. And we're gonna tell you two stories, but first we'd like to thank Karen. Karen! Karen, Karen, I'm sure you're not a Karen. Karen, Karen, you are always sharing your money with us, and we love that about you. Karen, Karen, we're so grateful for your flair and the other stuff about you that I'm sure is really great. I just wanted to rhyme. Flaring. Flaring. Karen, you caring about us. And so we care and about you. Excellent. I feel good about that. All right. I feel fine. Um, terrific. Well, should I tell you a story? Oh, do we need to do an hour word from our sponsors? Yeah, you do it. And now, a word from our sponsors. Something you don't know about me, Quinn. Tell me. 
I get really sweaty. Oh, I, I think you think I don't know that about you, but I know that about you. Pit stains always, every day. Especially when I'm telling you a scary story. Oh. I gotta say that I sweat th- straight through this shirt just now. <laughs> Do you see this? You know, it's black. It's black for a reason because I don't want you to Both see. Both of us are wearing black because of our Because sweat. when we record, I sweat so much. Listen, do you want to wear colors again? I'd love to. Listen, we've got a great product for you. This is Carpe. It's an antiperspirant. Carpe was created by dermatologists for, well, us sweaty people. Um, (laughs) It has maximum effectiveness. It combines clinical and natural ingredients. And obviously, since it was designed by dermatologists, it is dermatologists recommended. Right now, limited time, they're doing free U.S. shipping. So you should go to mycarpe.com to purchase your own. They have antiperspirant for underarms, for hands, for for feet. feet. If you too have a problem with sweat, no need to sweat it. Go to mycarpe.com and use the code TRULYDARKLY to save 15% and stop sweating today. Carrie. Quinn. You remember I wrote like a fun, quirky, interactive puzzle, paranormal mystery? Uh, yeah, I do. So for the holiday season, um, I took one of the shows that we had done IRL in real life and I made it virtual. Wait, it's, it's, is it the one that I've seen? Yes. So it's A Mediocre Life is the name of it because frankly, it is. You're not wrong. <laughs> You're absolutely not wrong. Well, this one's really cute. I mean, I wrote it, but I can tell you it's cute. It's fun. It's, I've been on it IRL and it's super cute. So the virtual one, it's an hour long. You can do it with almost any size group of people and you're basically helping an elf played by one of our comedians get back their bells by solving a series of puzzles and clues and you kind of are taken into this make-believe world where you meet a bunch of weird zany characters and I think it's frankly it's adorable it's a cute way to spend uh, the holiday season if you're looking for a way to virtually connect with family or if you're looking for a cool sort of team building thing to do with your office you can book the show at Purple Crayon Immersive and and if you let us know that you found out through Truly Darkly Creeply, a.k.a. me, we're going to give you uh, 20% off if you let us know. Whoa! Yeah, that's a big discount. That's a big discount for a big party. Party. Go see It's a Mediocre Life because it's going to make your life way better than mediocre. I'm going to talk. Okay, this is funny. So what happened was I was telling Nadine, while we're on the subject of Jared and Nadine, I was telling Nadine, oh, I'm going to tell Carrie the story of the smiley face killers. And I said, what's hard about telling a story like this is because there's actually so many cases that could be under the umbrella. Right. I don't know what to use as the through line, as the in to begin telling her this story. There's so many ways I could go about it. I'm a little lost. And she said, oh, I know. I know what you should do. You should tell it by starting with this. And she told me this whole story. And I was like, wow, that's a really interesting story. Thank you for telling me. I'm definitely going to use that as the through line. That's fascinating. I go home and look up the story she's told me. It's the smiley face killer. No, it's the happy face killer. (laughs) So now I'm going to tell you the story of... (laughs) The happy face killer. How fucking crazy is that? Well, I mean, listen, we've talked about it once. We'll say it. We've said it once. We'll say it before. There's something about smiley face, happy face. Like all that stuff is so sinister because it's meant to be happy like clowns. It's why clowns are so scary. It's like why dolls are so scary. It's like there's this music boxes, music boxes, these things that are 
supposed to be cheerful, joyful, happy. And when they take a turn, it just gives you that feeling that I think we strive for when we talk about that in our podcast. Because you go, wow, that's unexpected. (laughs) (laughs) What would you You don't say? Would you look at that? That's not what I was expecting to happen. What a turn. (laughs) (laughs) I got my information from Nadine. Wikipedia, Washington Post, ABC, Quora, Distractify, and the New York Times. Wow. 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 New York Times. Okay. Yeah. This is real. This happened. True crime. (laughs) Here we go. Here we go. Um, January 1990, Tanya Bennett of Portland, Oregon's body is found in the Columbia Gorge. A community college student sees the body, calls the police, and they discover that she had been sexually assaulted. Her shirt's lifted up. Her jeans are cut. There's a piece of fabric missing, and they're down. She's been beaten and strangled. They start to look for clues, um, but they haven't even ID'd her yet because she doesn't have an ID. She doesn't have a wallet. Um, All they find by her are some headphones and a red Swiss Army knife. So what they do is they release a sketch of her through the media, and they're trying to get her ID'd. And a week goes by, and her sister sees her on TV. Does not, for the record, think the sketch looks very much like her, but recognizes some of the pictures of clothes that are circulating. And she says, that's my sister. She was intellectually disabled. She's also was the only one in my family to graduate high school, though. She had left home the other night to go see some friends and return some videotapes, and I haven't seen her since then. Turns out, we kind of know this from a waitress, that she had been at a neighborhood bar playing pool with some guys, and then she left, and so did the men. That's all we know. So the police are like, we got to try to figure out who those guys were, right? Yeah. Nope, can't figure it out. They open a tip line on Crime Stoppers, and they get a call an anonymous call from a woman that says, I overheard a guy bragging about committing the murder. And I'll tell you who he is. He's 39-year-old John Sosnovsky. But when the person at Crime Stoppers is taking down this info, they spell the name wrong. And for some reason, that prevents them from doing any follow-up. What? Yeah. Um, Not to worry... The caller calls again a week later and calls the police and gives the same name. And so they start to investigate this guy as a potential suspect. Now, at the time, John Sosnowski is uh, on parole. He has DUI offenses. What's interesting is the person calling about John is actually in a relationship with him. It's his 58-year-old girlfriend, Laverne Pavlinak. Laverne was born in Oregon, in Marshland, Oregon, December 19th, 1932. And after school, she worked as an aide at a hospital. And in 1950, she marries this guy, Warren Brown. He dies. She gets married again to Rudy Pavlinak that year. He dies of cancer. So she's twice a widow. And she's super lonely. And she starts dating the guy that had been their farmhand, John. He's 18 years younger than her. Mm -hmm. She has called his probation officer in the past to say that he's getting violent with her and that he's drinking a lot. They have a very volatile relationship. 
But she's lonely, so she ended up with this guy. It's not going great for her. What's interesting is that a few years prior to her making this call about John, she called the FBI after a bank robbery and said she thought that John did it. But then they figured out he couldn't have done it. So So she has a history of, like, kind of calling. Doesn't look great, yeah. Well, so the police are like, let's meet up. She says to them, look, I overheard John tell a guy that he killed a girl after having sex with her and dumped her body in a gorge. She says on the night Tanya disappeared that he came home late and took off all his clothes and jumped in the shower right away, which was a really weird thing. Like, Strucker is weird. Um, maybe he's not a night showerer. Um, well, to come and be like, can't talk in a shower. He was like, did you step in shit? Like, what I don't did know. you do? Sometimes you're desperate for that shower. Yeah. I know I'm a little that way. Like, when I want a shower, don't talk to me. I gotta go okay. take a shower. But if, but that's you all the time, if this is just one time. You're right. This didn't fit his uh, usual. All. So mm-hmm. they go, come to the house to search it. Um, what they're really, I think, looking for is that piece of jeans that I told you was cut from her jeans. They don't find that. They do find a piece of paper that says on it, T. Bennett, good piece. Really weird thing to write to yourself if you've raped and killed someone, I think. Wait, what was her name? Tanya Bennett. But, like, why would you write that down? Why would you... If you raped somebody and killed them, why would you write a note to yourself that was, like, that was terrific? A trophy? That's not a good trophy. I'm not a serial killer, but that sucks. I have notes. Yeah. (laughs) So they're like, look, we got to talk to John. John, of course, denies knowing anything about the case. They send him home. They don't have any evidence. Um, Laverne, when they release him, calls the cops and is like, what are you doing? Now this guy's home? Like, I think this guy killed somebody and now I'm living with him. If you're not going to do this, I will keep looking. Like, I'll figure it out myself. She finds a strange person in the trunk of their car. And she finds news clippings about the murder. And she finds a piece of denim. And the police are like, okay. Oh, shit. They give John a polygraph. It's deceptive. His story starts to change. He does writes a seven-page statement that says that he saw Tanya Bennett at a truck stop a few times and that she left with another guy. He says he later got a ride from his friend Chuck and that in Chuck's car, there was a body wrapped up in a blanket. So at first he was telling the police, I don't know anything about her. Now he saw her dead in somebody's car. So they're like, whoa, this was a big about face. Let's go talk to Chuck. Chuck's like, no, that didn't happen. And they're like, okay, can we polygraph you? He's like, sure. He passes. There's no evidence, bottom line, to tie him to it other than John saying this. Um, What they decide to do from here is they're like, Laverne seems to really want to cooperate. So Laverne, let's do wiretap. Yeah. Yeah. And can you try to maybe get John to talk about this? So... The conversation, she keeps pushing. She keeps being like, that poor girl, that poor girl. Um, And he's not biting. He'll say things like, I don't remember seeing nobody or going to no gorge. It's not really working. That's double negative. So it sounds like he did see I don't see nobody. That's oh a tricky God. double negative. Ooh, he should have done that for the polygraph. Maybe to pass. Totally. Um, What happens, though, is that Tanya's mom, they show the person stuff to She's like, I don't recognize it. Then they do tests on the jeans. That's not the jeans. And they're like, Laverne, 
did you fabricate a bunch of evidence and like give it to us so that we'd lock up John? It kind of feels like that's what you're doing. She wanted to break up with him, but she just couldn't do it on her own. She needed some help. I get it. Well, what she says to them is like, look, yeah, I kind of did do that. But here's why I did it because I know he did this. So I'm trying to give you what you need. But the reason, all right, fine, fine. I'll tell you, the reason I know he did it is I was there when he did it. What sort of happened actually is that he called me and said he was in trouble. And I met him and he said, bring something large to wrap something in. So I brought a shower curtain. I met him. He had a body of a woman. We wrapped her in a shower curtain, put her in a car. I recognized her as Tanya because she used to be at the mental hospital I work at. John told me he choked her to death. We dumped her body. But I was there. And the police are like, well, you've proven a little... Unreliable? You know what? Show us where you dumped the body. That's not public information other than it being this gorge, which is a huge fucking area. Right. Right? So they get in the car and drive and drive and drive and they're driving... And they drive past where the police know the body was. And then right after they drive past it, she's like, wait, I think you passed it. Turn around. Go back. Go back. Here. She must be within like 10 feet of where they found the body. And she says, here's where the body was dropped. And it's huge. This gorge. So they're like. Unless she's like a psychic and she knew when they were like, she's like, go back. That could be it, too. Whoa. They are astounded. Then, inexplicably, her story changes again. And she's like, well, what really happened, if you want to know, is that... What evidence have you said that we don't want to know? We've been asking you what (laughs) happened the whole time. I just didn't think you really wanted to know. Well, so she's like, actually, what happened is I met up with John and Tanya and she was alive. I picked them up in the car to drive them home and they were in the back kind of play fighting. And then the fighting turned from play fighting to serious fighting. And then he said, she's not going to make it back alive. We pulled over. He wanted to have sex with her. He asked me to choke her while he was having sex with her as like a sex thing and I accidentally choked her to death and I feel so bad because I kind of killed her I feel really really bad about it and she's crying and they're like what is going on they're like your daughter's here if you do you want to tell your daughter you did this because I think they're being like what is happening yes and I think they're like would she lie to her daughter if she really did it she tells her daughter she did this and they're like okay I guess um well you're under arrest um She gets arrested and behind bars starts to panic and tells her attorney, I don't know what just happened. That was really weird. I said that I was lying. I want to recant my confession because actually you were right, Carrie. She says, I made up this whole thing to get out of an abusive relationship. I just really, really want to not be in this relationship. And so I lied. And he's like, well, it's not that simple. We got to go to fucking trial is the thing. And just before the trial begins, they end up getting a call of a report that some graffiti was found uh, in a bathroom in Montana uh, and in Oregon. And the graffiti says things like, I killed Tanya Bennett. Two people took the blame so I can kill again. 
obviously this is not admissible. No. So the jury doesn't know anything about it. Um, instead, what happens is they play the tape of Tanya saying, I did this. They find her guilty of felony murder. She's sentenced to life. John is next. He takes a plea because he's like, this isn't looking great. So he wants to just avoid the death penalty at that point, And he gets life. Then, well, the Oregon relationship. <laughs> she got what she wanted. She got out of that relationship. I get it. Listen, I get it. Well, I think that's the question. How bad was the relationship? Was it bad enough to spend your life in prison? She doesn't think so, I guess, because now she's like, "Ah, Can I appeal? This was the wrong way to go about this. The Oregonian starts receiving letters uh, that tease police that confess to the murder of Tanya Bennett and have a smiley face by the signature. They assume it's a hoax. It's like a really long letter. It confesses to other murders. It says, look, I went to truck driving school and I learned about people getting away with crimes because they've got like this nomad lifestyle. I adopted this nomad lifestyle so I could kill and I've killed other women, including this Tanya Bennett. Here's some of the places I killed them. The police are like, well, let's just look into some of the places he says he did this. And it's a little unsettling because it's matching up with some... Unsolved. Yeah, some bodies they found. Also, some of the letters say things that they are like, I don't think that was public. So it's sitting weird with them. And they're like, maybe we got to re-examine. In March of 1995, they find a naked, dead body in Columbia Gorge on the other side of the river. They ID this woman as Julie Winningham. She had been recently seen with friends who say she was dating a long-haul truck driver. They describe him. They describe his truck, which was blue. Some of them are like, yeah, they were in like a relationship. It was pretty serious. They were calling each other fiancés, actually. Um, But (laughs) it was actually remarkable. Um, I did watch um the 2020 on this and none of them know his name in a way that they're like it's julie's friends but they're like yeah this guy uh chris or rich maybe it was rich it was was a key like every friend does not know his name then they meet this woman bonnie and she's like oh i bought a car off them julie and her fiance jerry it was jerry And they're like, great, do you have, like, a bill of sale for that? She's like, sure, 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 finds it, gives it to them. And it's got his signature and his name on it. His name is Keith Hunter Desperson. (laughs) (laughs) You know what, here's the thing, though. It's it's worked in his favor because he's totally fucking forgettable. And that's why he's been... It was just very funny that they were, like, Julie's friends. And every single one of them's like, yep, Carl. And the other one will be like... Sure Jerry. thing, Jerry. Like, and the woman that had his name written is like, yes, his name's Jerry here. And it like says Keith on it. It's just as <laughs> funny to me. Um, but again, to the, to his credit, it allowed him to like, nobody knew who he was. He made like that little of an impression on people. Yeah. What, which is weird because he's a big guy. He's like six foot seven. Um, big guy. Let's talk about Keith. Keith Hunter. I said that's so disgusting because I'm just like, ugh, that had to be so scary for these women. You yeah. know, like, because I'm just assuming he did it. I feel pretty confident that it's him, but I could be wrong. Yeah. Uh, 
You're not. Uh, <laughs> Keith Hunter Jesperson uh, was born April ni- of 55. April 19th? April 6th. Okay. I thought you said 19th and I was like a day after my birthday. No. Okay, sorry. He was born April 1915. 1955. 1915. How the fuck only like 120? Jesus. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Come on. Focus in. Wow. He's born. He's Canadian. This you reminds, weren't expecting that. This reminds me so much of that other story that you told me about the truck driver. Oh, that one. The truck driver? Yeah. I can't remember. I can't either, but it's bad. Oh, right. Remember that one that's where he was, like, so keeping bad. women in his truck? Yes, that's so scary. And that's what it reminds me of. This someone who's, like, can do nomads, can travel, cannot be, can just fucking flee the scene and do whatever he fucking Maybe wants. Maybe he was the inspo for Keith. I'm not sure. Um, Keith was a middle child, two brothers, two sisters, abusive, drunk dad. You know what they said in the... In, what he said of his family. He said, my dad would hit me with a belt and my mom would hit me with a wooden spoon. And I don't know why, but I had like this feminist tick where I was like, why the wooden spoon? You know, hit him with a stethoscope and show him women can do anything. (laughs) (laughs) That's the dumbest, happiest joke I've ever heard, though. I really liked that joke. (laughs) You know what I took umbrage with? I took umbrage that it was a spoon. What? Can't you do the stethoscope? Can't you just hit the stethoscope? You know, bury it, do a paintbrush. Like, women don't just belong in the kitchen. Amen, Quinn. You Thank said you. it. You said it here first. Keith um, Keith was a big kid that will grow up to be a big man. He was kind of an outcast because of his size. People would call him Igor and Baby Huey. They would, like, make fun of him for being big. And he didn't have a lot of friends. He was really lonely. So what do lonely kids do? Kill women? torture animals he liked the feeling he got from killing them too and he would capture birds and dogs and cats near the trailer park he lived in and he would strangle them and then when he's 10 he becomes friends with this kid Martin but I guess he's not used to having friends and they would get in trouble a lot and get in fights a lot and Keith would end up like taking shit for things Martin did and he got really mad so he physically attacked Martin one day and he says he was trying to kill him. Um, they're 10. He gets pulled off him. He does not kill him. And then a year later, he's swimming in a lake with a little boy and the boy is like dunking him and he like blacks out. It's very scary for him. So then later he sees that same boy at a public pool and... He's like, oh, you trying to drown me? I will 100% drown you. He drowns him, doesn't he? No, but he tries to. God, this story is like, doing these type of stories, there's just so many similarities between other cases that I've done, Mm -hmm. that we've done. Yeah. It's like really insane. He also says that when he's 14, he was raped. I don't know any more about that um, allegation. I, I just know that he... You could probably ask him. He loves to talk about himself. Um, he doesn't really date until after high school. And then he meets this girl, Rose Huck, and they end up getting married. He has three kids with her. But he has started to do this truck driving thing. And Rose is getting calls at their house that make her believe he is sleeping with women out on the road. And she's like, forget this. Grabs the kids, moves in with her folks. They later get divorced. He still sometimes sees the kids. And there's, like, pictures of him with his kids where they look 
you would not know that there is something amiss, is all I would say. Yeah. I don't know much about how they feel about all this, but I, um, actually, I think his daughter is, um, speaks about it a lot. Really? Yeah. She seems really well adjusted for having this the hardship of having this person as a father. Wow. So Keith is continuing his life as a long distance truck driver. And where we left off in our story, the cops are like, found that bill of sale. Let's find Keith, right? Yeah. So they visit the company he works for, and it turns out, yes, he's the blue truck and oh you know what he's out he's gonna make a delivery to uh new mexico in two days they're like great we're gonna wait in new mexico for him and nab him there so they go they set up and they're like hey keith hey good to see you can we interview you and he's like yeah i love to talk about myself let's do this thing and to be clear they don't really have anything on him they really don't um they think he killed julie especially because the case is closed technically or not the julie not julie not julie he says yes i had sex with her she was my fiance it was consensual and i don't know what happened to her and they're like okay and they can't hold him so they release him and then a few days later they get a voicemail from keith and he's like i'm turning myself in and he ends up telling them that he and julie were in his truck she had some pizza they had sex he wanted to have sex again she did not. He strangled her. Without that confession, they would not have had enough on him, to be clear, yeah. to do anything. But now that Keith has confessed, he knows he's kind of like on borrowed time. And he had been for a while toying with the idea of killing himself. I think maybe he did. At one point, he said, there's not enough pills to kill me. Like, he's a really big guy. He sent a letter during this period of time to his brother, kind of deathbed confession style when he, I think, thought he was going to end his life that admits to a lot of things. Now that he's told the cops he killed Julie, he doesn't really want them to see that letter because there's other stuff he did and he's trying to minimize punishment, right? Yeah. So he calls his brother from prison and is like, do me a favor. Burn that letter. Throw that letter in the potty, would you? And the brother's like, sure. Oh, definitely. And then brings it to the police. (laughs) Smart. Yeah. Also, then why wasn't he bringing that letter to the police initially? Great question. Unclear. Um, But the letter does outline that he's been killing for five years and that he's killed eight women. The handwriting in the letter matches matches the the handwriting in that smiley (gasps) face stuff. It was him. It matches the handwriting in the bathroom. It was him, like, tagging, like, two people. He, like, couldn't take that other people were getting credit and that he wasn't getting enough attention. Whoa. That is some narcissism that is, like, unparalleled. Well, because of this narcissism, we actually know, like, a fair amount about who his victims were and what happened to them. And the first person that he killed, according to him... Was Tanya? Was Tanya. He went to B&I Tavern that night and she went up and hugged him like they knew each other and he was kind of thrown by it but then got into a conversation with her and they and he was like oh i have um a place i'm renting come with me she made some remark while they were there that upset him and he ends up beating her 
and choking her. The reason the button part was missing from the jeans is um, he was worried about fingerprints. So he had cut that part of her jeans off. Mm. After he murders her and all the attention goes to Laverne and John, he writes the note in the bathroom and he's still not getting any attention after writing the note. So then he starts writing to the media. Two and a half years after killing Tanya, he's like, I guess you can just kill people. And another body shows up in Blythe, California. Um, She has remained unidentified. He says he raped and strangled her and that she went by the name of Claudia. A month later, Cynthia Lynn Rose was discovered. Uh, Keith says that she was a sex worker that entered his truck at a truck stop while he was asleep. I don't know if what that means. I don't know if from his perspective, he's saying that she was trying to rob him or what happened. But obviously he killed her. His fourth victim was a sex worker named Lori Ann Pentland. And they got into a fight about her rates. Mm. Um, and she threatened to call the cops. So he strangled her. So sad. Six months after that, victim number five was a woman he says might have been named Carla or Cindy. Um, The cops had labeled her death actually an overdose, but he was the one behind it. A year after that, in 1994, Keith killed another Jane Doe, who he says went by the name Suzanne, and that was in Crestview, Florida. The vic- I mean, the victims are all over the U.S., right? Yeah. Victim seven. I find this really disturbing. Um, He didn't want them to be able to ID her. So he tied the body somehow under his truck and was driving around with her under the truck. Oh, my God. Um, When he confessed, I don't think they had found the body. And then he killed Julie in 1995. Which is obviously the murder that led to his capture. He claims sometimes to have killed as many as 185 people. Um, eight The eight murders I just listed are the ones that are confirmed. I don't understand people. He doesn't have any remorse. He winked at Julie's sister at the trial. <gasps> He's a real shitbag. He... Oh, God. I listen to interviews with him, and it's so creepy. It's like there is... He's really eager to talk about himself, open book style, and it's like there's no feeling behind it. There's nothing there, Um, which is weird because a lot of people from an outside perspective were like, oh, he was a nice guy. He was a funny guy. He was this... Like, he seemed normal, and it's like he's wearing a human costume. Because there's nothing in there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. He's serving, obviously, life without parole um, at an Oregon State Penitentiary. But there was no forensic evidence that linked him to the crime. Um, What happened with uh, Tanya is that to determine he did it, he showed them where he threw her purse. And they did recover her ID in that area. Yeah. Um, but he, when they were like, where'd you drop her body? Remember I told you that gorge was really big? He couldn't remember. He couldn't find the spot. So what we go back to is how the fuck did Laverne do that? I think she went with him and she was clocking their reaction and seeing if they were like, I bet they fucking hinted. Like, I'll tell you what she says she did. So when they were driving, 
what she was doing was she was looking out the window for uh, broken branches and like track marks because she knew that when they found the body, a bunch of cars would have pulled over in that area and gone into the woods. A bunch of people would have walked into the woods. They would have broken down the whatever, the branches and trees to get through there. So she looked at the part that was the most sort of askew and guessed that that would be it and was right. Uh, After this happens, mm -hmm. the judge does not right away rule that Laverne and John should be released immediately. They have already served five years at the point that all this happens. Um, But it's really hard to win a reversal of a conviction on the basis of new evidence, no matter what the evidence is, like how unimpeachable or excellent it is. Oregon appeals courts um, do not need to consider evidence discovered more than five days after the defendant has been sentenced, even if the evidence proves them innocent. How is that right? It doesn't make any sense. But Oregon's law permits a judge to waive guidance at his discretion, like to decide what to do. Or her discretion. Oh, I'm reading. Or her. Beat your kid with a gavel if you want to be a judge. (laughs) (laughs) Aye, aye, aye. So, because the judge basically can determine if they're going to allow this evidence or not. Like, it's it's totally up to the judge's discretion to exist. So, John is released. His life sentence is revoked. Laverne did not have her conviction overturned, but was, was released from prison. But wasn't, like... Didn't have the conviction overturned, though. What the judge said of her is that she has selfishly engaged in an obsessive and persistent obstruction of justice, which deflected the investigation at an early stage, causing it to focus on her boyfriend, while the real killer remained free to kill again and again. Laverne derailed their investigation and... Keith, the question is, would they have, but yeah, would they have found it anyway? Though honestly, because she took the fall, he wrote that on the bathroom. Like he would have just driven and not told anyone. Do you know what I mean? And then he continued to kill. But they might have figured out it was him if they had kept looking. Maybe, but I don't know. The other seven women, I would say, who didn't, the other six women, in between Tanya, mm-hmm. Tanya and Julie. The six women in between there are proof that the police didn't find them. That's, t- t- in my mind, my thought is this. I feel like this woman was in an abusive relationship and trying to get out and doing weird things in order to do it. But at that point, she was like, I'd rather be in jail than be with this person. I think and I'm, in, the, I'm worried. I'm, yeah. Well, I think then the point is, if you're going to derail a murder investigation... Right. There are consequences. Totally. You're not the only person whose life might be in danger. Right. Um, I'm not saying she's not without fault. I'm saying there could be a little bit more compassion at the sum total of her case versus. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. No, I mean, I, I think that's nice of you. I think that's generous of you to feel that compassion towards her. She says that she was very disturbed at the time of doing this, and we can't speak to or understand that mental state. Obviously, she felt like she needed a way out. I would like to think that 
there were other ways out. Yeah. Um, I, I happen to know there must have been. Um, that the desperation of confessing to a crime she did not commit right. just to get into another situation. Yeah. Listen, there's something going on there. Either way, she's out of jail. But they're she, both they're dead now, actually. John oh. and Laverne are both dead. Um, I mean, she should have been... I mean, for making a false confession like that, I think, obviously, consequences need to be paid. But to not... I mean, she didn't kill her. She didn't kill Tanya. No, she didn't kill anybody, but... But she, she used people resources. people died after Tanya at the hands of the person that did kill Tanya. Yeah. And we don't know what might have happened. We totally. don't. We really, totally. really don't. And... Uh, certainly them going to prison did give Keith a feeling of power and a feeling of, I can kill and get away with it. It was the first time he killed according to him. Yeah. And he did, oh my God, this asshole. You can't believe that he just talked to to somebody on the documentary and he said to her that he likened killing to shoplifting. He was like, you get a high, you know, you do something that's against the rules. You get away with it. It's like shoplifting. And she was like, it's not like shoplifting. She said to him, it's not like shoplifting. It's killing someone. It's taking away someone's life. And he goes, it's exactly like shoplifting. This guy sounds like a piece of shit. He's such garbage. But I do wonder if he wouldn't have reached out or admitted that in that Oregonian letter if they hadn't taken the fall because his ego was affected, right? Like, we don't know. I guess, listen, I don't know. We don't know. We don't know. The point is, do me a favor. Yeah. Don't derail murder investigations if you can help it. Yeah. That's a huge favor. Just as a general precaution and guideline. Yeah, I just, I don't know, I guess I must have been really bad. That relationship must have been really bad for her to do such extraordinary measures of getting out, planting evidence. Like she, but like that is off dark, your rocker off your to go rocker. that deep with it. Totally. Wild. Anyway, thanks for the tip off, Nadine. I thought that was a That's really an crazy story. story. The happy face killer. The happy face killer, Ugh. folks. Um Another not happy story with a very misleading title. Totally. By the way, I think it's time for some ads. Yeah. Who said humor had to be clean? Or buttoned up. (laughs) Or buttoned up for that matter. There's this amazing website called Smartass and Sass, and it's a subscription box made for people like you and me. I'm looking at this amazing necklace that's a cleaver that says, I'll cut you. I like the don't fuck up the table coasters. I think those would make really good gifts. I actually want that for my mom. Oh, yeah. I love that. For a big box, you can also subscribe and get a fun t-shirt and a bunch of snarky items for just $50. I'm Um, sorry, Quinn. $49.95. Oh, you're so right. Each of those boxes is going to have the shirt, seven to nine unique items, that's basically $90 for, as Carrie said, $49.95. Thanks, Carrie. Go to www.smartassandsass.com and use code DARK for 10% off your first subscription. Because this is like the perfect gift when you're like, all right, I got the big gift, but I'd like to give them something that'll make them laugh and smile and that'll surprise them. Go to Smartass and Sass, use the code DARK for 10% off. It's going to be a blast. 
dear readers, I know you guys have noticed some changes to the podcast in the last couple of months, namely that we finally got some ads to monetize our podcast and feel better about ourselves. We are really excited to have found these sponsorships through Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to podcast sponsorship opportunities. And what we love about Podcorn is that there's no middleman. You can be a podcast of any size to be on the platform. They're not snobby. You can get on there. You can set your own rates. You can collaborate with brands that you want to collaborate with. And Podcorn supports you every step. And they guarantee that you're going to be protected and compensated for the work that you do. Their marketplace mission is to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control of how and when you decide to monetize. We'll put a link in the show notes so you can sign up for Podcorn today and start browsing sponsorship opportunities. And we just want to thank Podcorn so much. If it wasn't for Podcorn, we wouldn't have had the courage to try to take our podcast to this next level. And we're really happy that we did. So thanks, Podcorn. We love you. Hey, we're back. Or are we? Or are we talking from the past? Because we're super safe with Birdie. (laughs) Birdie, you guys, Birdie envisions a world where women can be safe, where they can uh, walk down the street and just uh, do their thing, not really worry about... uh... Can I tell you something actually about Birdie? I was in Chicago with a friend and she had a really cute purple birdie. They didn't have that color when I bought mine or mm-hmm. my mom bought me mine for Christmas. It was this really cute lavender birdie. And I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. Where'd you get it? She goes, my sister gave it to me. She goes, she had a really scary experience. This guy was fucking following her from the train, her Ugh. sister. And she kept walking and this guy was still fucking following her. And she went up to this guy who was in her neighborhood who was like putting trash out. And she went up to him and she was like, can I please stand by you? There's a man following me. He's like, yes, come this way. After that happened to her, she bought a birdie and she bought one for her sister and she bought one for her whole family. That's so smart. Get a birdie for yourself. Get a birdie for your friend. Get a birdie for your daughter and get a birdie for your son. I think like everybody can have a birdie. I carry mine on my bike so that if something happens, I just pull it. So smart. It sets off a strobe light. It has like a really loud noise. It's just going to, even if you never use it, which hopefully you are never going to use it, um, except at a weird sound rave or something. But it, totally. if, I hope you don't have to use it, but you're going to feel better if you have it. So get one today and use the promo code TDC10. You get 10% off. It's a no brainer. We love you. Stay safe and um, bye, Birdie. And we're back. Wow. Wow. Hey. So I'm going to tell a story now, and I am going to do the story. I'm, I'm continuing on my um, ghost tour stories that I was told on the ghost tour a couple weeks ago. God, you're obsessed with this ghost tour. I'm obsessed tour. with this ghost tour. Listen, I'm, I, I take any sort of pitch, and I go with it. Um, so this is a story of Harry K. Thaw. I got this information from Wikipedia, um, Famous Trials, uh, Murderpedia, Encore Theatrical. Sure. And TripAdvisor. And TripAdvisor. Ghost Tour. TripAdvisor. West Village. Five stars. Five, five out stars. of five stars. Five out of five. So Harry Kettle thought he's born in 1871. So already we're like in Creepyville because it's old. He's the son of a coal and a railroad baron, and he's the heir to a multi-million dollar fortune. 
This guy is like definition rich boy vibes. He was one of 11 siblings. Some of them were half siblings because his father had remarried. Um, And his brother, who was a year younger than him, this is so dark, but I had to share it because they put this fact in and I was like, I have to talk about it. So his brother, who was a year younger than him, he died in bed with his mother because he was smothered by her boobs. What? What? How old was he? I think he was a kid. Like, he was a baby. Like, he was in bed with his mother. I feel and he was so bad for that mom. Horrifying. Horrifying. But they, they, they threw that piece of information in, and I was like... That is so, so disturbing. scary and sad. SIDS is the scariest thing in the world. Yes. And babies getting smothered happens constantly. Like, constantly. In the sense that, like, when you have a baby, every single thing you buy the baby will have a warning on it that's like, you're probably going to accidentally smother your baby with this, just so you know. Like, every single thing you buy. You buy, like, a pacifier, and it's like, babies have died. Like, written on the pacifier. Like, everything. It is terrifying. Maybe I just won't. (laughs) Skip it. Skip it. Fucking skip it. Skip it. So, Harry Kepa, you know... The parenting was lacking and lots of temper tantrums. We're not saying that because of the boobs mother. No. Okay. Because that could happen to anyone. No, the parenting was like, it was, he's like born into this like very rich, wealthy family and like has lots of nannies. I mean, just like lots of money. And this is something that follows his life. The rest of that follows him the rest of his life. It's just like money fixes his problems. Oh, period. It's one of those vibes. Like, in kid, when he was a kid, he had insomnia. He had temper tantrums. He would do this thing with, he would, like, baby talk, which continued into his adult life. Um, when he went to school, he wasn't necessarily the brightest guy, but he was, like, into drugs, partying. He wanted, like, excess of everything. He um, was into, like, sadist sexual acts. Um, he would throw objects at his servant's head, something that I think he learned from his mother. Um, Whoa. He got, because of his name, he got into, like, Harvard College, which is their, like, prep, prep school or whatever. He got into Harvard College, where he, quote, studied poker. He would light cigarettes with $100 bills. And this is back in, like, the early 1900s. Wait. $100 are... He would light cigarettes with $100 bills? Yes. Who that's how rich he is. That? He's so fucking rich. I mean... This is a little bit further, but I do want to... It's important to know. This is how rich he was. He was given a stipend, like a monthly allowance, if you will, of $2,500. Okay? $2,500 a month. You're probably thinking, wow, that's great. Think about this. The average working person at the same time was making a year $500. What? In a year? In a year. Wait, when is this? The 1800s? Yeah, the late, the early 1900s. Okay. Late 1800s. Like, it's, like, okay. it's great. So he's making $2,500 a month from his family just existing, a working person. I mean, obviously, in the last episode, you heard that working conditions were not good. So average, of course, was way lower, but making $500 a year. That's fucked. Beyond fucked. Carrie, I'm sure you gave it all to charity. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> he would drink. He went to cockfights. He was, like, very into the ladies. He did lots of drugs, like cocaine, morphine, speedballs. At one point, when he was at Harvard College, he thought a cab um, cheated him out of 10 cents out of a fare, and so he chased him down with a shotgun. And when he got caught, he was like, it wasn't loaded. And, of course, like everything else, whenever he would get in trouble with the law, Mommy and Daddy would pay their way out. They would bribe people. They would, they would, you know, lubricate the pocket so that nothing bad ever happened to him. So God, I guess the Countess was right. Money can't buy you class. Elegance is learned, my friend. Um, so his dad dies. He inherits $3 million. His mother increases his allowance to $8,000 a month from the 2500 And again... Just the same sort of situation was happening. He'd get in trouble. Um, a lawyer would come from the family, get him out of it. At one point, he went to London. He would go to Europe all the time. He went to London, and he lured a bellboy up, and he tied him up, stripped him naked, and beat him with a riding whip. What? What's wrong with this guy? When they went to go, like, to, to get, when he was like, this man fucking did this to me, his family was like, we'll pay you $5,000. Are we good? We're good. Um, oh. In fact, the word playboy came into the lexicon at this time, and people believe that playboy was actually in reference to Harry Kathaw. Mm. So he lived in Pennsylvania. That's where his family was from. So he, he like sort of like went back and forth between Pennsylvania and New York City and then would travel to Europe quite a bit. And he was kind of obsessed with being um, a part of the like social, like cool guy crowd in New York. So he applied to all of these prestigious elite clubs to be a part of. He was denied by all of them, probably because he was a monster of a human. Yeah. At the same time, I'm like learning about the men at this time. Like, no, there's like a lot of bad guys at this time. These like young men. Um, it was a time of no accountability. Yes. Short of maybe not getting to join. Certain clubs. Certain clubs. But he felt that his applications were denied because of one person, this guy, Stanford White. Stanford White is like a famous architect. He's designed a bunch of buildings in New York, but he was like older, also kind of a Lothario vibe, like drinking, all that stuff. He's in the social fair, and for some reason, Thaw has it in his mind that Stanford White is what's preventing him from going into the social sphere and just becomes a scapegoat for all of his animosity. So he has this, like, real fucking hatred to this guy. At one point, though, Thaw had a party where he invited a bunch of women to his apartment, and a woman, a show, a, a showgirl that Harry K. Thaw had insulted wanted to seek revenge on Harry Kathaw. So what she did is she intercepted all of the female guests of Harry Kathaw's party and was like, come to this party. And she brought them to fucking Stanford White's party. Okay. So like he wanted to have this like huge party where his parties were legendary in that like at dessert, all the women would get a pair of a beautiful piece of diamond jewelry. Like just the amount of expenses were so extravagant. So this woman who he pissed off. She was like, I'm going to get back to, at you and I'm not going to let any woman come to your party. And she siphoned them all out to Stanford White's party. And then um, he was like, oh, it was Stanford White who did this, who is like, out against me, right? It like fed his narrative. So eventually Thaw meets this woman, Evelyn Nesbitt. Evelyn Nesbitt is a famous chorus girl and he immediately becomes enamored with her. She's a model um, and she was really fucking young. 
she's in this show and he goes to the show and he becomes fucking obsessed with her. He um, goes to 40 of her shows um, in just over a year. He basically stalks her. He gives her money. He gives her gifts. He says his name is Mr. Monroe or something. And then finally he reveals himself as, it's me, Harry Katha. <laughs> Rich playboy, privileged asshole. Gross old man. Gross old man. And he wants to marry her, right? And everybody kind of warns Evelyn. They're like, this guy's like bad fucking news. And she's like, okay, cool, cool, cool. Including Stanford White, who she knows. And I'll get to that in a minute. But he becomes really fucking persistent. Harry Kathaw becomes really persistent with her. In fact, he like, she has an appendectomy and he like goes to her side and he puts on airs in front of her mother And shortly after, he's like, you all should come to Europe with me. And he brings Evelyn Nesbitt and her mother to Europe. And he wines and dines them and eventually puts a wedge between them and sends her mother back to London or something. And then he takes Evelyn on another part of the trip. Like, typical manipulative, abusive guy situation, dividing a wedge between you and your family. So she's, like, young, right? He's obsessed in all of his horrible behavior he also has this idea that women should be chased because he's just a piece of shit right so they're out one night him and evelyn are talking and evelyn knowing that he has such a a, an obsession with chastity she reveals this story to him where when she was younger she dated stanford white dated is a loose term for what actually happened she was a child she was 15 years old 16 years old so she has, was, like, partying around the area, like, around Stanford White. He, at the time, I believe, was 49 years old. And at one night, he's like, I'm having this party. He invites Evelyn Nesbitt over to his party, and no one else shows up. Shocking. So he fills her up with champagne, and she passes out. She wakes up naked on his sheets with blood running down her leg, and he goes, you belong to me now. She has been raped. By Stanford White. The anecdote that I'm familiar with mm-hmm. surrounding this moment is that he, this is so weird, but he built a swing. He did build a velvet swing, yes. That always was like... And he gr- had her like swing in front of him. And be like, yeah, that to me, that image of like... Yeah, that's Stanford White. An old guy that builds a swing in his house and invites a young girl to swing on the swing in his house in front of him... That he's a pedophile. I can't shake that image. It's very upsetting. Thank you for saying that. Because, yes, it's very upsetting. So Harry K. Thaw finds this out and goes full rage, right? It is for, again, this is his arch nemesis who he believed has closed him out of all these social situations in New York. And now the woman that he loves is obsessed with, has put on a pedestal. He raped her. He loses his fucking mind. So at one point, they're still on their trip in Europe, Evelyn and Harry Kathaw. They go to visit the birthplace of Joan of Arc in France. And there's a visitor's book there. And he fucking writes, she would have been a virgin if Stanford White had not been around. Which I don't think they like, like you doing that. In a fucking guest book of Joan Please of Arc. do that. But he's, this is this guy, though. It's like, he does whatever the fuck he wants. Now, remember, he's a fucking sadist and has sexual sadist fantasies. So after finding out that she's, 
quote, impure. She was fucking raped as a child. On another part of their trip, he locks her in a room and he sexually assaults her and beats her. And she stays in that room for two weeks. When he's done, he apologizes. <clears throat> and he's in a very good mood. Are you fucking kidding me? No. Sorry. He follows her. That you can say. He follows her for four years, constantly asking her to get married, constantly berating her. She finally agrees. To marry the guy that locked her in her room for two weeks. Mm-hmm. But look at but I will say with Evelyn, Evelyn became a sex object at a very young age and also had this horrible thing horrible thing happen to her with Stanford White. And her and Stanford White remained friends. They remained friendly. Remember, he was in her life. And she even later on, after all of this stuff happens, she was like, He was a really good friend. He did one really bad thing, but he was a really good friend. Like her, you get the feeling she didn't have a lot of friends when you hear that. Yeah. It's really sad. It's really sad. She's a total victim in every way, shape, and form in this story. Yeah. Poor Evelyn. And especially then because she becomes tabloid fodder, which I'll get into. So they're getting married. She's marrying a millionaire at this time. You'd think she's going to wear a beautiful dress. No. Harry K. Thaw dresses her, and he puts her in a black traveling suit with brown trim to get married. Like, <laughs> what? Why? Like, what we're wearing now is what she got married Why? Uh, my assumption, and this hasn't been said anywhere, was that she wasn't a virgin, and so he probably didn't think she should have a white he dress. Was, yeah. He was controlling her. And he's fucking up her head about it and being like, this he's is what you're worth. controlling her. And, yeah, scary. Their marriage, it wasn't happy, obviously. They moved back to Pittsburgh and lived with his family. And then Thaw becomes really paranoid. And he, because he's trying to expose Stanford White for what he does to women and how horrible of a guy he is. And so he becomes really paranoid that Stanford White is going to kill him and he's following with him a gun. So Harry K. Thaw buys himself a gun. When really it's these two guys who are fucking cut from the same cloth. Like that's what's so fucked to me about it is it's like, this animosity that Harry K. Thaw has against Stanford White, they're the same person. They're both guilty of the same fucking things. Being disrespectful to women and being rich and not feeling any, they have any consequences. So it's unclear if Stanford White knew that Harry K. Thaw had this like large vendetta against him. Like he's like, oh, I was friends with Evelyn. Evelyn's now married. I'm living my life, probably continuing to rape young women. June 25th, it's 1906. Evelyn and Harry are about to go to Europe, and so they decide to come to New York for a couple days before they take off on the ship. They decide to attend a show um, on the rooftop of Madison Square Garden. It is really hot out. I mean, it's June in New York. And Harry K. Thaw shows up in a full tuxedo with a long black overcoat, and he just, like, won't take it off. And at 11 p.m., the show is, like, around finishing, and Stanford and his friends, Stanford White and his friends, go and they sit at their local table, their, like, regular table. They're parring, they're schmoozing. You have Harry K. Thaw, who, like, gets up and, like, goes over to the table and is about to say something, and then, like, leaves, changes his mind. Hmm. He gets up, he, like, paces. People described him as being, like, a tiger or something. You know how they pace? He does this three times. He goes and gets up to, like, say something, and then he leaves and turns away. Mm. Goes and gets up, says something, doesn't say anything, leaves and turns away. 
There are thousands of people at this event. He walks up to Stanford White. He pulls out a gun and he shoots him three times in the head, execution style. People think it's a part of the show. It's obviously not. Evelyn Nesbitt sees this happen and like is able to run away. Harry K. Thaw is arrested and it becomes this huge media sensation. Witnesses say that when Harry K. Thaw was leaving, he said, I did it because he ruined my wife. He had it coming to him. He took advantage of the girl and then abandoned her. When he met his wife, he said, it's all right. I probably saved your life. He was charged with first degree murder. He was denied bail. While Harry K. Thaw is in jail. Can you, the sentence, you ruined my wife. Can we like just unpack that for a minute? Of course. It's like, it just, it hearkens an image of like a four-year-old throwing a tantrum because someone broke a toy. Do you remember when I said he was had tamper tantrums when he was a kid? Same fucking thing. Nothing's changed, what kills me is he raped his wife. He sexually assaulted his wife as well. Like, yeah, I, somehow I don't so... think any of this has to do with chivalry. No, 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 no. It's all fucking ego. It's all fucking ego. Wild. So, while he's in jail, it's so fucking dark. He doesn't have to wear a jail uniform. He gets his food catered from Delmonico's oh steakhouse. God. He can have champagne. The doctor administers champagne. sounds like champagne. when Jeffrey Epstein was in jail. Thousand Same treatment. Percent Got because it. Because they're fucking kid rich gloves. and they have, yeah, kitty gloves. Fuck the media goes crazy. And of course the media presents it as it's a fight over a woman, right? The, the fucking headline says, woman whose beauty spelled death and ruin. Oh, stop. Yes. Are you kidding me? Yes. She becomes this Helen of Troy character where it's like, oh, it's her. She's, it was all over jealousy of her. And maybe that's how, that is not accurate. What the fuck? They're like, hey, get a load of this harlot, see? (laughs) Yeah. Let's blame a woman's wiles for the actions of men. Fuck right off. So it's considered the trial of the century. And the person giving my tour um, the other day was so funny. He was like, it was 1906 and it was the trial of the century. <laughs> I really like that. I thought that was very funny. So I just steal that joke, but I wanted to make sure I gave credit to it's him. Good. Um, now, everybody saw this happen. Like, this wasn't like, who did it? It was like, everybody fucking saw this happen. Um, so there was like a whole conversation of like, should he plead insanity? But the family was like, the thought family was like, oh, we can't have that in the bad press. We can't have our mental health be questioned in any way, shape, or form. And so eventually they agreed to make it, quote, dementia Americana, which was temporary insanity. That it wasn't that he was an insane person, which arguably he is, but that it was just a brief finding out about this man affecting his wife's womanhood would drive him temporarily mad. There were two trials. The first trial was deadlocked. So they took a poll of it. And Harry K. thought at the trial, freaked out, cried, flailed that nobody believed him, that he did it for his wife. Nesbitt testified at all of the trials, and she actually was given money by the Thaw family to do so. That seems... 
illegal. Mm-hmm. She ended up getting cut off after she made... And her family now says that she made about $25,000 at the time from her testimony. He was eventually found not guilty based on temporary insanity. It was the first time that argument was ever used in a case. He was sentenced to incarceration for life at the Matawan State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. However, because he had all this money, he was able to arrange accommodations and he was had all of the privileges that he had in jail. It wasn't any different. But he still didn't love it, so his legal team started to work on declaring him sane so he could leave the institution. But in 1913, I guess they didn't do it fast enough for him. He just walked out of the asylum and traveled to Canada. And so they had to negotiate him coming back to the States. So he finally came back to New York, went in jail. But then he went to a trial and they declared him sane and he could be free. So he, think about this. He got <laughs> declared insane, temporarily insane, went to mental institute for life. Then they're like, if we argue that he's sane, we can get him out. Great. He's like, ah, don't want to wait that long. Goes to fucking Canada, escapes, comes back finally gets a trial where the judge is like, you're totally sane. You think, wow, he's not going to repeat this again, is he? Three years later, he's charged with sexual assault and kidnapping. Oh my God, of course he's going to repeat it. But there are no consequences, so you learn that you can repeat it, mm-hmm. like the story I just told. When you don't <laughs> exactly. have a fucking consequence, sometimes exactly. you don't learn a lesson. So, same deal. He pleads insane. Temporary insanity, goes to goes to the goes to the mental hospital, is declared sane, leaves. In he 19- found the loophole. Found found a fucking loophole. His lawyers did that money. My God. In 1926, he publishes a book of memoirs called *The Traitor*, written to vindicate his murder of Stanford White. But he never regretted what he did. Twenty years after killing him, he said, under the same circumstances. I'd kill him tomorrow. Because there's been no consequences. Yeah. He died in 1947. He was 76 years old. And that's the story of Harry K. Thaw. Good riddance to bad rubbish. Evelyn Nesbitt, I mean, became a pretty well-known... She, she lost became like her marbles. Marilyn, she lost her marbles. She, she ended up suffering... I mean, someone, our tour guide had said... She was like Marilyn Monroe, right? She, like, became sure. this sex pot, this Helen of Troy vibe situation. And then she ended up killing herself with drugs and alcohol. Yeah, it's really sad. Because uh, so many people were actually complicit when you think about it in this takedown of uh, of somebody that deserved a better shot at life, you know? And they were painting her nude at a very young age. Yeah. Giving her mom she the posed, money. Her mom, I think, was... Her mom was, like, made the head... Made some questionable decisions. Yes. Um, and we've seen that before in the exploiting of her child for money. Yeah. She posed nude. I mean, she was a sex... I mean, she was a... She was a sex icon from a young age because her mother allowed her to, you know... To do so. It was really fucked up. And, like, again, like I said earlier, Harry K. Thaw used her mother as a way to get in mm-hmm. with her and then also drove a wedge between the two of them. I just, Evelyn Nesbitt's such a sad character because she was taken advantage of by literally everyone. Yeah, no, that's what you think. You, literally there's no everyone. one that enters the story that has Evelyn's best interest at heart. They just use Not her as a pawn a for their own egos. 
and what a world to live in where nobody's on your side that way. Um, and people are saying they're on your side and then doing you further damage. Um, she didn't stand a chance at a happy life. No. It's fucking sucks. But they told that story and I was like, holy shit, I didn't know that. And it was, I had to tell you, dear readers. Where, like, where do they tell it? What's the... They tell it, do you know that, um, the beautiful library in, um, in, on 6th Avenue, it's that, like, gorgeous, Mm -hmm. it looks like a clock tower, it's super stunning. Yeah. It's one of the New York, it's now a public library, but before it was a night court and a jail. Oh, no way. That's what's so cool about New York. Every building... Has such a story. Has such a crazy storied past. I went out with some some of my coworkers the other night, and they invited. The, the night was starting at this cool bar, and they tell me the name of the bar, and I've got the location, and these are people that I work for that do puzzle stuff. So you can't I really ask questions. Show up there, and I'm like, I can't ask why I can't find this place. I'm looking at my Google map. I'm standing in front of it. It's not there. But I'm like, maybe I'm being tested. So I'm like, I can't say anything. (laughs) I'm in front of a Five Guys pizza. And I'm like... Five Guys Burgers in the West Village. Five Guys Burgers. Oh, I know that one. You went there. When were you there? A few weeks ago. I wonder if we... Okay. So I... I want to go there. I'm like, do I text them that this is a burger place? No, they know what they're doing. And Google Maps is saying this too. So finally I go into the burger place and it's, uh, you know, busy and people are buying burgers. And I kind of poke around and I notice a stairway in the way back by the counter where you order burgers. And it's not blocked off or anything. So I awkwardly do that thing where you're like, I'm going up. Is that, is anyone mad? Is this employees only or? And sure enough, atop this burger joint unmarked is this really beautiful bar called The Garrett. And it was really cool. Um, but I love speakeasies. I love I the, too. I love secret passageways. And I love, I don't know, that gimmick works on me. <laughs> totally. Every time. I'm like, go into a phone booth and Sign come out up. in a bar. I fucking love it. And it's always a really cool, dimly lit, overpriced cocktail situation that oh, is yeah. just fun to be a part of. I love that. Speaking of which, we should have a little do lunch you want to or something. A cocktail? Oh, I would love that. Let's do it. Do readers, we love you. Join Patreon, like, review us, um, and subscribe, tell your friends. Don't hamper murder investigations. Do join Patreon and treat women nicely. And by doing that, you join Patreon. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> uh, uh.